they would come up with things like uh, a zombie-themed cafe, a campfire cafe experience, a future robot cafe. And then I would ask some people, hey, how do you feel about the restaurants in your area? And those who had generated creative ideas felt worse about that experience than people who hadn't. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Hey, it's Lisa, and you just heard Dr. Josh Katz describing a fascinating research study about the impact of creativity on the way we view our lives. You'll hear the whole thing in just a moment. This is our last episode in the creativity series, and over the last four episodes, I have loved rediscovering all of the benefits of bringing more creativity into my life, as well as finding new ways to challenge the unseen obstacles that get in my way of actually jumping into creative habits with more excitement. In episode one, we talked about rejection and fear. Then in episode two, how creativity connects us to others. Episode three, finding flow. And in episode four, we talked about using creativity to live authentically day to day. And there's one last aspect of creativity that we have to cover before we put it to bed. And that's how being creative changes our brain and even our soul. It happens on the inside, in how we feel, think, and perceive the world around us, and on the outside, in what we say, do, and how we show up in our communities. We're going to talk a little bit about creativity's power to heal, and we'll also get into the dark side of creativity. Not dark like true crime dark, more like could make you miserable dark. We'll also be touching on French fries, the Avatar franchise, and the weirdest to-do list I've ever made. But one thing is clear. Whether we're harnessing its positive side effects or not, creativity is changing us from the inside out. So before we dive into the science and social experiments, the this is your brain, this is your brain on creativity, let me tell you about a change that creativity has had on me, which I can't entirely explain. You know that thing which happens in musicals when a character needs to express how they feel and words suddenly aren't enough and the music starts and the lights go down? And if you're really into musicals, like me, you can totally feel it coming. We see it in the actor's body. We hear it in the score from the orchestra. And we accept it because we're lost in the story and, hey, it's a musical. That's what they do. But I, along with a lot of other theater kids, really wish our lives played out as a musical and that we could break out into song and dance when we feel too much and need to express ourselves because it feels right. But that's how you get kicked out of Target on a Tuesday night. I may have mentioned before on this podcast that my husband, Christopher, was diagnosed with ALS, a terminal disease in the spring of 2016. Have I mentioned that? Yeah, No, I know. I have had many overwhelming moments of grief when what I felt was too much to be expressed in words, in conversation, and it seems as if nothing really could be done about it. I was always trying to figure out what people did in those moments that didn't ruin their lives. I had a friend, a widower, who lost his wife and my friend, tell me that he spent a lot of time playing the piano after his wife passed away, something that he hadn't had time for previously, and that, quote-unquote, 
it helped. And I asked him, helped with what? Being sad, processing emotions, forgetting, passing the time? He couldn't explain it. He said that it was a meaningful part of accepting his new life. He wasn't suggesting I do it. He just mentioned it to me in passing. And that really triggered me. I have a piano. It's in my basement. I can play a little bit. But my late husband, Christopher, played beautifully. He had studied to be a concert pianist, and he could play anything by ear. And it was a huge part of our family life. He would often sit down at that piano and play. And I would regularly congratulate myself for marrying Chris so that I got this music for the rest of my life. And I vividly remember the day Christopher told me, less than a year after his diagnosis, that his piano playing days were over. And it was so early. I wasn't ready to let that go. If I'm being honest with myself, I'm still mad about it. And after that day, I had the piano moved downstairs out of sight because it bothered me so much. So one day, months after Christopher had passed away, I was really mad, very angry about how unfair my life was. And on top of everything else I had to do or give up, I also didn't get piano music and certain songs played in my home like I thought I would have. Music that I wanted my grandchildren to know. And I literally said out loud, I guess I just have to do everything. And I sat down and started the very long process of someone who took piano lessons as a kid and can read music, but takes forever to learn a song. And I started learning some of the favorites Christopher had played. And it helped. Like my widow or friend, it's hard to put into words exactly why, especially when the piano had been such a sharp reminder of loss. It's not the kind of creative flow where I get to escape and forget everything. It's almost the opposite of that. But instead of just being an excruciating trigger for my trauma, I found something there that helps. Something is changing in my brain and in my heart, however slowly, when I play Chris's piano. I'd like to bring back the scientists we've heard from this season because they explained a little bit of this phenomenon, the power creativity has to shape the way we think and feel. Dr. Joshua Katz is the researcher we heard saying, don't write other people's PowerPoints in episode three. And now you're going to hear the research behind that advice. So my PhD research was a project about how being creative changes our views on what we have access to and what we interact with. So what my research actually did is I kind of used restaurants for a little bit of it as a domain just because everyone kind of has access to it and there's a variety. All right. So if you can imagine this, you've got a bunch of people in this study. Half of them are asked to brainstorm a list of restaurants in the area, real restaurants. That's the control group. So what I asked some people to do is come up with some ideas for weird restaurants. And then the other half are supposed to come up with new concepts, restaurants that don't exist. My producers actually ran this experiment on me, and I had a lot of ideas. There's no tapas where I live. We need that. A sandwich place that serves fries instead of potato chips like everybody else. Like, why can't we have both? I always want both. Or have you noticed that nachos are always a side menu item? Where is the dedicated nacho cafe where you can pick your toppings like a make-your-own-pizza place? Anyway, they asked for three concepts. I gave them 12. I have a lot of feelings on this topic, but I digress. Everybody's brainstorming restaurants. 
they would come up with things like uh, a zombie-themed cafe, a campfire cafe experience, a future robot cafe. And then I would ask some people, hey, how do you feel about the restaurants in your area? And those who had generated creative ideas felt worse about that experience than people who hadn't. So it was actually in coming up with these zombie cafe, whatever, they, they became disappointed in their own experiences because they were like, man, you know, my local burger joint really is a letdown compared to campfire cooking. I find this so fascinating because it's not like I consciously chose to be dissatisfied, you know, with our local restaurant scene and its lack of tapas and nacho bars. But that's how I felt when I was done brainstorming. And that's what happened to the people in the study. Whether it was restaurants or their jobs or a website, after generating all of these ideas and possibilities, they felt significantly less satisfied with the real world. Apparently, this happens all the time. This is the dark side of creativity. So I think there was a really famous case of this when, when Avatar the movie came out, that people were upset that they couldn't go to that, that fantasy other, other planet. All of us have, have lost ourselves, right, in a good book or a TV show yeah. or a movie, any kind of art, and just gone back to the real world and been a little bit more, you know, especially if we're lost in it and we feel like we're participants in it, um, yeah. a little dissatisfied with the real world. Yeah, and so to me, the marquee, you know, the, the eye-catching thing is the dark side of creativity, this villainous view, but what it really does is it opens up potential for how you can really alter your own experience. This avatar syndrome is a real thing. It's actually named post-avatar depression syndrome, and it causes suicidal thoughts and depression in some viewers. Researchers noted that the emotions brought up by the movie left real feelings of how dark and depressing the real Earth we live in is when compared to the gorgeous views of Pandora. Also, everyday life felt lacking and boring when compared to the ones experienced by the Navi. They were immersed in this imaginary world, and it had real-world effects. In the meantime, there's another thing that happens when your perspective is reshaped by creativity. Changed thoughts led to changed actions. Doctors Lynn Vincent and Jack Ancalo had a lot to say about how creativity affects our behavior, for better or for worse. Here's Dr. Goncalo. We actually look at how being creative shapes people's health choices. So we asked them to be creative, and then we gave them a subsequent decision to make that was health relevant. And we found that being creative made them produce burgers with more calories. Being creative made them produce cocktails with more alcohol in them. Being creative made them generate workout routines that burn fewer calories, despite the fact that they also <laughs> So we were tentatively calling it the fat, drunk, and lazy paper, but we're probably going to change the title. It's the, it's the underground working title of the paper that probably will see the light of day. But, but we're really finding that, you know, being creative subsequently shapes the way we see the world, um, the choices we make, the behaviors we engage in. Pausing here for a moment. Up until this point, we've mostly been talking about the ways creativity can influence us in ways that feel negative. People experiencing post-avatar depression syndrome in 2009, for example, or in this case, coming up with ideas that undermine our health. 
But you may notice that even when we call this the dark side of creativity, all of our researchers still sound pretty upbeat, and there's a good reason for that. Dr. Vincent and Dr. Goncalo shared the other things creativity compels us to do. Here's Dr. Vincent. There's other work that shows that creativity can cause people to reach out and connect with other people because you need new ideas, you need new information. And so when you're in the idea generation stage, going to your weak ties, the people you don't talk to every day can give you some new information, spark new ideas in ways that are really unexpected. But then when you need to refine the idea and elaborate on it and evaluate it, then you want to go to your stronger ties, those people who are going to spend time with you, who really care about you, who you trust to give you good and bad or constructive feedback. So creativity, while it can push you to the organizational edges and people might be uncomfortable with you, it can bring connections with other people. I found this so interesting. We've talked a lot about how creativity can help us connect with others, but apparently being creative also compels us to make those connections. And that's just the beginning, as Dr. Goncalo will explain. There's even more optimistic news, too, that, you know, this was a paper in 2005, which I don't think is cited as much as it should be, but um, they found that being creative induces a think-different mindset, which causes people to rely less on stereotypes. So we can actually reduce stereotyping by forcing people to think differently around the assumptions, the knee-jerk kind of assumptions that we make around people that they encounter. And people who are in a creative mindset don't rely on those as much. And so that's another, you know, optimistic possibility. This really caught my attention. The fact that creativity causes us to challenge, or at least rely less on preconceived notions and stereotypes. Thinking back to the dissatisfaction we were talking about earlier with Dr. Katz about not living in a magical world we see in movies, the way being creative can leave us with the feeling that our real-life circumstances are lacking. If I were in a situation where someone next to me was treated unfairly, I hope I would be dissatisfied. It makes me wonder how else creativity could inspire us to raise the bar for the world around us, not settle for injustice and give us something to work for. I think about the original Star Trek in the 1960s, portraying a science fiction future to millions of Americans where a functioning team could be made up of both men and women, of different nationalities, in leadership roles, something which many people found offensive in the 1960s and which drew a lot of backlash. Half a century later, no one would ever blink at that. But back then, it was a hypothetical, radical novel concept. Talk about a powerful use of creativity, thinking outside the stereotypes and limiting beliefs that were so ingrained in the culture of the time. In episode one of this creativity series, we talked about how being creative can help us overcome the fear of social rejection. Dr. Vincent pointed out what a difference this makes on us as people. Miriam Kushaki, who's at Northwestern, and I have a paper where we found that people who see themselves as creative are more willing to morally object on behalf of someone else. Say, hey, what that person did to that other person is not fair. Big pause here. 
There's something so powerful in the research that Dr. Vincent is referencing. Creativity doesn't only allow us to self-soothe when we encounter rejection, but it could also empower us to be brave in standing up for other people, for what's right. I love the thought that being creative can change our nature to the point where we're thinking less about ourselves and more about what we owe to each other. It highlights a relationship between selflessness and creativity, which is deeply personal to me. In episode two of this series, you may remember the conversation with my friend Jed Wells when we were talking about how to contribute to the world and help others as a reflection of our devotion to God. In hindsight, I can't believe I didn't bring up the very personal way Jed and his wife Jane have done just that, exactly that for my family. And now that creative selflessness and service to others is coming up again, I have to tell you what they did for us. So when my husband received a terminal diagnosis, again, have I mentioned that before? Yes. After the shock wore off and my anticipatory grief was fueled by anxiety to control every aspect of the disease and our new life, another story for another Lisa Show series, I told Chris I really wanted him to write his life story while he could. I wanted to make sure we had it, all the stories and personality and details from him. This is an overwhelming undertaking. I mean, after all, he was just trying to live, which was becoming more and more complicated every day. Because of the nature of his disease, you know, we didn't know how long he'd have use of his hands, fingers, voice, or active breathing. And I was busy helping him live and overseeing the major changes we needed to make in our house to make it livable for him, raising five kids, working, you know. And I remember having the conversation and it was casual, like we were just listing out what we needed to do for the week. Like, okay, yeah, we need to call the neurologist about medication for your muscle fasciculations, your anxiety meds, pick up groceries, uh, go to parent-teacher conferences. Oh, and you need to write the story of your life. Cool, 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 cool. Oh, Oh, and don't forget we're out of milk. So we just didn't have the time or honestly the brain power to focus and reflect back on life. We were just too busy trying to convince ourselves that we had a lot of time to live. And Chris said, you know what I want to do is to tell this story of my life the way Jane, Jed's wife, and also Chris's cousin, wrote that book about my grandma Marion. Kind of like a question and answer conversation. So much more interesting. So later that day, I texted Jane something really awkward like, hey, how are you? Okay, so this is a very huge ask, and I'm sorry to even ask, and I know you're busy, but I need Chris to write his life story, you know? And he loves the book you wrote for Grandma Marion, so um, could you help us out? And she texted right back, Lise, of course I will. I'd be honored. She took my hesitancy and my desperateness and answered it with enthusiasm, joy, and ownership. So every week for the next year and a half, Jane Wells came over, sat down at our kitchen table with Chris to record him talking about his life with her little voice recorder. She organized everything and prompted him to talk about his childhood, adolescence, LDS mission to Finland, coming home, meeting me, career path, each of our children. She led him through everything. And she was fun and positive and she made it a family affair. The kids and I would just come through the room and say things like, well, that's not what happened. Or, oh, I totally forgot that. And we would all laugh together. She made it the kind of experience he wanted. Funny, joyful, because that's what his life was like. It wasn't tragic to him. And she knew that. 
She got to know our kids in a way she hadn't before, and me. She helped me feed Chris, and we would make fun of his extra-long straw, all their adapted devices that he had to use, and they explained to me the inside jokes that they had had ever since they were kids. When the audio was complete, she and my Aunt Christy transcribed the tapes. Christopher made edits to the text, correcting details and adding missing details, using his adaptive communication equipment because by the time the audio was finished, he was unable to speak clearly. That was a long process because he was essentially typing with his eyes. It sounds weird. It really was. But he finished it before he passed away in June of 2020. Months after Christopher died, Jed formatted the text into a book form, chapters and all. And not only that, but he created choices for the cover photo, the title, the quote on the back, a poem I chose. And he took great care with the decision for every detail. He sent everything off to be printed and delivered the printed books to me. Jane and Jed did something for us that we couldn't have done for ourselves. Their expansive love of writing, editing, Photoshop, photography, storytelling created something that is now a treasured heirloom for each of my children. It is one of my most treasured possessions. They helped create that with Chris, and I will be forever grateful for them for that experience and the product. And it doesn't seem like saying, I'm so grateful they used their creative talents to bless me and my family is enough. (laughs) It's more like they mourned with us when we were frantic. Their efforts provided lasting comfort to my grieving children. They created joy and laughter for a dying cousin and reminded us of the profound meaning in it. They created a hundred things when they worked on this book, some I'm just barely realizing. Creativity was the instrument for this monumental act of Christ-like love that changed all of us. The more I think about the story and so many other examples of creative service, the more convinced I am that this goes both ways, that not only does creativity make us more selfless, but selflessness can make us more creative. I'm remembering what Jasmine said about stage fright and selfishness, how thinking about yourself can shut down that creative flow. Well, the opposite is true also. I have never felt more inspired than when I'm trying to apply my creative skills to enrich someone else's life. When you're motivated by bringing someone else joy or relieving another person's pain, you get completely out of your head. That's some of the purest creative inspiration you can find. I want to return to something Dr. Katz said when we were talking about the restaurant brainstorming experience. I still want a nacho bar. Anyway, and how coming up with new ideas had the power to reframe the way we perceive things or events in our lives. The wildest thing to me is it makes sense when you're like, oh man, I really wish I could be in Harry Potter or Avatar. People kind of wish they were in a zombie apocalypse. You know, they see these movies and that's a fantasy. So even that other world that seems terrible. That I would not survive in. I'm convinced. Yeah, People still want to live in that. I need shoes, you know? Right. I need a working plumbing. I need a microwave. None of that is going to work. And Clean so even pillow. that other reality, yeah. if you let yourself dwell on it and compare it in that way, huh. can really make you unhappy with what you don't have. Because you're focusing, when you're focusing on, oh, the zombie, you know, that would be so much adventurous. Yeah. It would be so different. You're not thinking about 
what happens when your microwave breaks? Oh, no. Or, or you don't have any food and you got to go scavenge yeah. for it. Yeah. And so that's one effect, but it's sort of a window to say that the way that we can imagine things or think creatively changes our perspective on the real world. What you come up with really matters. And that particular finding was that you get disappointed, but I thought it, it kind of a stepping stone to creativity as a lens. This conversation with Dr. Katz, particularly the last thing he said about creativity being a lens, it sticks with me because, well, I mean, first of all, I would not survive in the first wave of the zombie apocalypse. I want to be clear about that. I mean, I tell my kids all the time, like, don't go to extraordinary measures and try to save your dear, sweet, widowed mother because, like, I don't want to survive the, that first wave. But but I do understand how easy it is to sort of romanticize this kind of adventure and Hollywood drama that really in real life wouldn't actually be that appealing. So regardless of which creative futures we imagine or lose ourselves in, I think it's interesting that this lens can be formed whether or not we're aware of it. And that can affect our mental health. Knowing about the lens which changes the way we interpret and feel about our own lives, we can use it to our benefit. Dr. Katz and I talked about gratitude as a way to leverage this effect, not only counting your blessings and focusing on the real good and positive things in your life, but also by applying that creative brainstorming. What are all the ways things could have gone wrong but didn't? By flipping the lens around, you could have a significantly different experience of the life you already have. Really thinking about, here's how my life could have been different in a bad way, and I'm so glad that it's not. I'm so happy for my health. What's that you're doing is you're thinking about, I could have various illnesses, and I don't, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for my family or for these other things. And so what you're imagining is you're still using that creative thing. You're imagining a world that's different badly, and then you're really focusing on, but I have this better situation. It's a little funny to me that envisioning a world that's worse can actually make us happier because anxiety does the same thing, but in a different context. Anxiety is saying, look at everything that's going to go wrong for you. While this approach, counting the trials you don't have along with the blessings, can bring you peace. It actually sounds a lot like therapy. You process what's real, what's not, and what could be reframed to live a happier, healthier life. There's no substitute for actual therapy, but I love seeing the similarities here. Developing your creative side could give you more of a choice in the way you experience your life. And this is something that the research backs up as well. Not just that creativity is therapeutic, but that it can actually increase your autonomy and agency. Dr. Concalo described two experiments which showed exactly that. We asked people to think of a big secret they were carrying, and it feels sort of weighted down. If we gave them the opportunity to be creative, they actually feel liberated and were more likely to agree, for instance, to move, to help the experimenter move a stack of books from one huh. room to the other because they felt lighter as a result of the creative process sort of feeling, you know, liberating them from the burden of keeping this secret that they were carrying. So I think that's almost suggesting that being creative can be therapeutic for people who, you know, let's say I'm carrying a secret I can't reveal. Well, maybe I'm going to have a lot of creative pursuits yeah. that will help me manage the burden of, of carrying that um, and will allow me to be productive and helpful and so forth. You know, another paper they came out recently, actually, just a couple of months ago, showed that being creative gives people 
a sense of autonomy that they have the capacity to choose how to approach their work and how to approach their life. Um, and autonomy is a cornerstone of well-being. You know, in order to have a sense of psychological well-being, you need also to feel as though you have choices over how to live your life. And being creative gave people that sense that they, in, in the ability to choose uh, how to approach things or, or which ideas to share or whatnot, it made them feel like they have a sense of choice in the world. I think a lot of us can relate to the feeling that life is out of our control. Like my story from earlier about the shock and disappointment of losing live piano music in my home, it was a painful time and it was at the beginning of me being driven by things outside my control in big ways. I felt like there were no real choices for me to make. And yet, I've always believed that one of God's greatest gifts to us and examples of pure love is our gift of agency, choice. It really agrees with the research that at the time I didn't know, but now I do, that we need a sense of choice in the world for autonomy and well-being to feel unburdened and liberated in life. I have to tell you the continuation of that story. I sat down and have played the piano a lot after Christopher died. And I think I understand a little better why this has been healing for me. First, it reminded me of what Christopher did after he stopped playing. He focused his attention on directing, teaching, and writing, all creative things he could still do. Even as ALS took away things from Chris that he loved, creativity gave him his agency back in the form of new choices, and Chris chose to create. He chose different creative pursuits and poured himself into them. It was shared. It was not a selfish act. And it has spread and inspired others to create things like plays and TV shows, family stories, history, paintings, drawings, and films. And I've thought a lot about that since. It's, it's really so inspiring to me. I think he did it to put out good in the world, especially for me and our children, and it did good. I can't tell you all of the dedications and tributes that he's received, and I've received emails, messages, handwritten letters about him, his creative work, from people who were just trying to express how it changed them. The other thing that playing Chris's piano has done for me is that it turned the symbol of what's been taken from me into a symbol of the choice that I still have. Now that I think about it, anytime life hands you a void like this, when the rug is pulled out from under your feet, when your dreams or the future that you've looked forward to are suddenly replaced with emptiness and loss and that feeling of powerlessness, the choice to keep believing and to choose hope in spite of everything, that's creative. You're creating a new life. You are creating new dreams and new choices. That's choosing your lens. Chris can't be here for me to play the piano. I'm still mad about it, but I'm here and I choose to create the music that he loves and that I love. What has been unexpected is that without talking about it, my kids have started sitting down and playing the piano too, and I can't tell you how meaningful that is to me. Connecting the research and examples I found while preparing this episode has only confirmed to me that creativity is more than doing a hobby or perfecting a skill or even solving a problem. Creativity is our divine birthright. What makes us human and it changes our brain and our soul for the better. If I sound like I'm being dramatic, it's because I am. And I feel really passionately about this topic. 
A life spent in the creative pursuit is a well-lived life, and there's always something that we can do to more fully embrace creativity and experience that healing and self-expression and fulfillment. No matter who you are or whatever chaos is happening in your life, creativity will give you a choice. It will give you many choices. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Avery Stonely and music and post-production by Gracie Davis. Please share this podcast with a friend. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and you can always catch us on Instagram and Facebook for more discussions, fun stuff, and behind the scenes with Lisa. Lisa.